Good morning. You know, when I was in first grade, uh, it was a little different than first grade is now. They actually gave us a report card. And uh, on the report card, there were things like, you know, math and, and writing, handwriting. I did very poorly in that. And any of you have ever received a handwritten note from me know that's still true. Uh, and there was actually a category for self-control. At least there was when I was in first grade. Now, that was one of those categories that they graded with the uh, three-letter grades, E for excellent or excels, uh, S for satisfactory, and U for unsatisfactory. I was a U man myself uh, in, uh, in self-control because underneath self-control were things like keeps their hands to themselves. My, 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 you know, love language is physical touch. What am I supposed to do, right? You know, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't know that at the time, but <laughs> nonetheless. Uh, or, you know, this comment uh, that my wife as a first grade teacher uh, used once is fond of the sound of their own voice, <laughs> right? Right, that's a code for they, they don't stop talking, right? And that's the way we think about self-control, the uh, ability to, to stand in line, to sit at your desk, to do what the teacher says, and all of this. This is the way the world uses self-control. As a matter of fact, uh, the word in our text that we're looking at actually comes from uh, two different Greek words that that you know, ego, which is your, yourself, and then this word kratia, which is uh, lordship or mastery. And so it's a mastery of yourself. That's where the word comes from. And yet, when we look at it in the New Testament and its five occurrences, we see that it, it's sometimes used in a sense you might interpret that way, but here it cannot mean that even though that is historically the way the Greek culture uh, referred to it. Whenever you go all the way back, you can find Socrates using this word as a, a philosophical virtue. Plato uh, saw it as a, uh, uh, something that's over and against overindulgence, particularly in the areas of food, drink, and uh, physical relationships with, with other people. Uh, and then Aristotle sees it as a way of keeping your most powerful passions under control. And so that's where we get the idea. And uh, of course, this weekend is uh, Veterans Day was yesterday. And we know we have many, many veterans here in our congregation. And we thank you for that. Uh, but of course, veterans know about self-control, standing at attention, standing in line, doing what you're told. And in that sense, you're standing in that great tradition. But is that what this word means here? Is Paul capping his list of the fruit of the Spirit that begin with love, joy, and peace with something that you basically exert upon yourself with willpower, with a determination. And, and the answer has to be no to that. And there are a couple clues uh, that we see to that. One, throughout the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul has been saying that the key to the Christian life is the same as how you got into the Christian life to begin with, and that is through faith. 
It is by receiving the finished work of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you, receiving it by faith. This is the key to the Christian life. So here, as he lists these virtues, he's not saying, well, you know, faith is great for most things, but then you have to control yourself. He even says to the Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun with faith, are you now going to try to continue with works? So he's not suggesting the work of self-control. And there's another pointer in our text that I think is very helpful. And it's something that we've read over and over these nine weeks. And it's at the very beginning of this, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is... And so here, when he uses self-control, even though he's using a word that is often referred to as self-mastery or willpower or the control of yourself, he cannot mean that because he says this fruit comes from the Spirit. He's talking about something that requires the presence of God in our life in order to manifest. And so he's talking about something different. And so what does he mean when he uses the expression self-control? Well, after reading a fair amount about it, I have summarized, I think, what the best uh, minds have said with this definition. Uh, Here, as Paul uses the expression self-control, he refers to the spirit-enabled ability to prioritize the best choice in a situation for the good of others and the glory of God, and not simply for one's own benefit. Let me repeat that because it's long. I couldn't shorten it. It's not a lack of self-control. It's just nuanced, right? It's the spirit-enabled ability to prioritize the best choice in a situation for the good of others and the glory of God, and not simply for one's own benefit. In other words, uh, to to put it in maybe plainer language, as we live and move and have our being in this world, we are constantly in a series of choices whenever we have stimuli applied to us from the outside. Let's say I'm in a conversation. This happens to me all the time. Many of you know this happens to me all the time. And that person I'm speaking to says something I don't appreciate or I don't like, I'm actually making a choice in that moment. How will I respond to this person who said something I either don't like or I don't agree with? Now, for those of you who have had these conversations with me, you know that you have not just someone who claims to be a sinner, but a real genuine sinner as a pastor of your church. And uh, what I too often do is I make the choice to gratify my own desire in that moment. And I allow my emotional temperature to rise very suddenly. What are you talking about? How could you say that? You know, that's completely wrong. Did you just fall off the turnip truck? Right? You know, something I haven't, I don't think I've said that to anybody. Uh, but nonetheless, I too often have that initial reaction. Why? Because I'm choosing the reaction that feels good to me in that moment. And I'm not showing spirit-enabled self-control. That is, I'm not saying what is the best way to respond for the sake of the person who spoke to me and for the glory of God. 
Instead, I'm just saying what feels good in this moment. You know where it comes out the most? I know, y'all get it a fair amount. Who gets it the most are the people closest to me. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I, I, I was told years ago that I shouldn't use illustrations from the Andy Griffith show uh, because it's really old. But in this church, I think it'll fly just fine. Uh, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying y'all seem like you're connoisseurs of classic television, right? Well, there was a great Andy Griffith episode where there was a couple in town that yelled and screamed at each other and called each other's names and seemed to destroy their china on a daily basis, throwing it at one another. And Andy and Barney are called to the scene, you know, to try to bring some resolution. And what Andy decides to do is he decides that he is going to make them come to the courthouse every single day and he's going to give them politeness lessons. And so he has them run through scenarios like waking up in the morning, you know. So he makes them say to one another, good morning, dear, good morning, honey. And they can't, they can't even say it. They, they just growl it out. Good morning, honey. You know, good morning, dear. But over time, he actually sees some progress and they start to show self-control in their relationship uh, with one another. The only problem is then they're mean and nasty to everybody else. And so he starts having to, to follow up reports of the, the woman yelling at people and the husband punching people in the nose. And, and, uh, and so what does he decide at the end? I mean, it's a terrible moral at the end of the story. He decides to just let them yell at each other and throw dishes at each other. That they just have to get it out. And too often that's the way we are with the people closest to us. I have said things to my parents, to my wife, to my children that I would never say to anybody else. Why? Because I'm not thinking what's in the best interest of this other person at this moment. I see them all the time. If I have to think about what's in their best interest and what is to the glory of God every time I have a conversation, that'll just take so much mental and spiritual energy. It does. And now we begin to understand why Paul also says to pray without ceasing. Because if, if you are being controlled by the Spirit so that you respond in situations for the best interests of the other person and the glory of God, that's going to take an awful lot of prayer. You know, maybe that's why some of you pause before you speak. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little impatient, which is covered earlier in the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm like, why don't you say something? And you know what? I've just come to believe that maybe you're saying, Lord, what should I say in this, in this situation? How should I respond? Lord, help me honor you in what I say. Do you know that all those things are terrific things to pray, even with those that are closest to you? The person you share a dorm room with, the person that you live with, the person that you work with. What would happen if we asked the Spirit to control our responses? Whenever we were with other people, interacting with others, well, I believe that we would see that he would enable us to prioritize the best interests of those other people and the glory of God more and more, and we would grow in the fruit of the spirit of self-control. You see, this is, this is what Paul is talking about. And you say, well, how do you know that's what he's talking about? Well, because he uses the word in other places. Uh, the place that is probably the most prominent one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Here, 
the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and he uses an athletic illustration. And uh, the people who lived in Corinth would have been very familiar with, uh, you know, what we would refer to as the Olympic Games or uh, the Isthmus Games. And, and they were very, very codified, and they were very familiar. And so he uses an athletic imagery, a favorite passage of all fellowship of Christian athlete people everywhere, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now this is a different version of the same word that he uses there in Galatians chapter 5. Each athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, look, he's describing the way he actually does his ministry in the world. The way he goes about preaching and teaching and starting new churches. And he said, I can compare what I do to the athlete. You know, the athlete shows self-control. Why? Because he has a higher purpose than enjoying just all the food that he wants to eat or all the wine he wants to drink or all the carousing that he wants to do. He has a goal. He wants to do well in the games. And so he has self-control because he has a higher purpose to do well, to, to get the perishable wreath that they would place on the head to, to show that he had won. You know, here's something that I did not know, just side note, historically speaking. Did you know that Emperor Nero got into the Olympic Games? I mean, like really got into it. And they had Olympic Games for poetry and theater and for chariot racing. And Nero actually won the wreath for chariot racing. Do you think that was rigged? <laughs> I suspect it was extremely rigged. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, he did this. Why? Because he needed the acclaim. He, he wanted to get the prize. It was so important to people. Paul says, just like an athlete doesn't just gratify his own desires, but he actually mitigates those desires because he has the greatest desire, which is to do well. He says, that's what I do in my life. I don't just do whatever I want to do. I have self-control because of the Holy Spirit, because I prioritize what will be of the greatest benefit to others and the glory of God. And you say, well, how do you, how do you know that for sure? Because earlier in the text, in verse 19, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Isn't that amazing? Paul says, look, if you really want to summarize my life, I make myself a slave to everyone so that I might win people to the gospel. 
When he says here at the end of the passage we read before, I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Disqualified from what? It can't be from a relationship with God because he says everywhere that's not up to him. It's not according to his merit. He means being disqualified from the prize of seeing people won to faith in Jesus Christ. He says it is worth Trusting the Spirit to work this self-controlling prioritization in my life to see more and more people one to faith, to see the kingdom expand. He says, that's why I express self-discipline. There he's illustrating this principle in a beautiful way. But of course, he's not alone. In each of these, we've asked the question, how do we see this fruit manifest in God himself? Now, of course, God the Father uh, that we don't see any instances where God the Father expresses the idea of self-control, but we do see it in God the Son, in Jesus himself. He says it multiple places in different ways. But one place that I think is very helpful is in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, we are really in the middle of an amazing story about Jesus doing one of the most um, uh, just phenomenal signs of his life ministry, and that is that he feeds over 5,000 people, starting with just a few loaves of bread and, and a few fish, and yet he feeds thousands of people. And in John chapter 6, we realize that the people really dig a free meal. I'm very much paraphrasing the entirety of a, of a beautiful passage, but they're like, we like a guy who makes food for us. And so they want to make Jesus king so they can have the lifetime cafeteria plan. I'm, I'm oversimplifying to an extent. Uh, but uh, so that they can just keep getting fed. They're like, we like this sign. Could you do it every day? Two or three times a day, preferably, right? You know, in many ways, I feel like I'm just like those people. And in verse 35 of John chapter 6, Jesus gives one of the great I am statements of the book of John. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. In other words, you just, you just want food. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. I love that. Oh, there's so much we could talk about. Isn't it great when you refer to a passage that's so deep and so big, and I'm really just plucking out one, one salient point from it, that here in the middle of this explanation about what Jesus has come to do, he throws in this expression, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus is saying my entire life in ministry is not about just doing what I want. It's not about doing what's easy. It might have been easy. I don't, I, I don't know why he says this here exactly. He might have said, yeah, it'd be easy for me just to keep feeding you. And it would have been. He, he could have just fed people over and over and over again. And people all over the Middle East would have said, we need to come see Jesus. He gives you free food. 
And, and, and I don't know. I don't think that's what he's saying, but he could be saying that. But what he's saying is, I am not here to do whatever I feel like doing. I'm here to do what God has sent me to do. He's saying there is a subordination of his will to the will of God the Father. He says, my whole life purpose is to prioritize what God wants over what I want. We see this ultimately, of course, as the night uh, that he was betrayed, the night before he died, when he says, you know, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You can find this in Luke 22, verse 42. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know what all was going on in the heart and mind of Jesus at that particular moment, but I know there was a struggle. There was a struggle because he knew what the next few hours would bring. Mock trial, torture, humiliation, nakedness, crucifixion. He knew it was coming. And he says, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. What is Jesus saying? It's not about what will make my life easy. It's not about what will be pleasurable. It ultimately is about what is best for other people and for the glory of God. And what was best for other people and the glory of God is that Jesus did go through the scourge of suffering of the cross and there die to pay the penalty that sin deserves. To absorb the judgment of God for rebellion and sin against him. That was best for us and it was best for the glory of God. We see that because God raises him from the dead on the third day showing that he had accomplished everything God wanted him to accomplish. I know we all rejoice in that. We say, thank you, Jesus, for going through the suffering, for dying on the cross, for paying for my sins. But we often don't dig underneath it to say, thank you, Jesus, for not pursuing your will, but the will of your Father. And then to say, Lord, help me not to do my will, but your will. That's what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. You know, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? Jesus is saying, here's a pattern of prayer every day to not think about what I want, but what God wills. And so here, this is what Paul is saying when he talks about self-control. He's saying, look, there is a spirit-enabled prioritization of the needs of others and the glory of God instead of just our own interests. And in a way, it beautifully ties together the fruit of the Spirit. Because love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, these things, self-control wraps it up. Why would I want to see these characteristics manifest in my life? Because they are better for other people and the glory of God in this world. Some writers say self-control beautifully uh, contrasts with the end of the works of the flesh that we see. I know it's been a long time, uh, but as we see from the verses that immediately precede the fruit of the Spirit. If you look at the end of that list, you see that we have 
uh, drunkenness, carousings, and things like that. That would be the opposite of self-control. I know, I just edited the ESV, but I have had parents tell me that their kids were asking too many questions about a particular word there in the previous verse. See, if you have a Bible, you can look and see what I'm talking about. It's always good to have one. You see, here he's saying, look, it's not that. It's not wanton self-indulgence. It is being controlled by the Spirit for the good of others and for the glory of God. Now think about that. How does this apply to us? And you say, hopefully, how does this not apply to us, right? Now, first of all, I want us to be honest about the world we're living in. Let's be honest just for a second about the world we're living in. The world we're living in, unlike the world in which Paul lives, has no use for self-control. I mean, for the most part. In the first century, self-control, because of the influence of Greek philosophers, they they would have said, well, of course, self-control is a virtue. We now live in a time where self-control itself is considered a vice. Because if if I am expressing mastery over my desires, let's just go with the old Greek version. If I'm expressing mastery over my desires, then I am being inauthentic. This is, this is the way the world's logic works right now, right? If, I, if I'm not just doing what I feel, expressing what I think, doing what I want, then I'm not a genuine person. That's what the world says. As a matter of fact, they go back and, and, and misinterpret, you know, Sigmund Freud from, you know, years and years ago. And they say, yes, I... I don't want my, you know, my ego being, you know, suppressed by my super ego and, you know, which is the ideas of the world. I don't think anybody knows what that stuff means, to be honest, you know. But what, what was he arguing? He was saying there is these genuine desires and, and feelings and things we want to do, but then there is sort of this overarching culture around you that's constantly trying to keep you in the box, keeping you from doing those things you really want to do. And the way we have handled that is to say, well, let's just, let's just throw all the restrictions off. If it feels good, do it, right? And, you know, of course, the promise of that, the, the way it was sold to us as human beings in the West, was that when we do this, we're all living as our genuine selves. We're letting our freak flag fly. We are being so authentic in what we think and feel that there will be peace and harmony and everyone will share Coca-Cola with one another, right? I don't know. I remember that ad from years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's just about, you got to just let people be who they are and everybody will just get along. I think that if we were experimental scientists, I think we would agree that that logic completely has broken down. Everyone just doing whatever they think and feel and expressing themselves however they want, regardless of what's best for others or the glory of God, has led to chaos in our society. It's led to unbelievable increases of anxiety, depression, uh, suicidal tendencies. It's led to war. It's led to the internet, for goodness sake. (laughs) You can't get a nastier quagmire uh, than that, right? 
You know, I, I kind of chuckled. This week, I had the joy of uh, accompanying my wife on a work trip she took uh, to San Diego. That's in California. I know some of you are from there. Thank you for being here. I appreciate that. And, and after being there for a few days, I, I have the question, why do people leave California? It's beautiful. The weather was perfect every day. It never rained. The skies were clear. They have beaches. They have mountains. They have fresh seafood. Anyway, somebody told me it was because it costs a lot to live there. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, I could live on the beach, right? While I was there, I went to a particular beach uh, there in Southern California, which is the home of many seals and sea lions, right? It's called La Jolla. No, I'm kidding. It's La Jolla, right? I know. I, I like to be a Southerner every now and then, right? And there I was sitting there and I was just mesmerized. I was mesmerized by a couple things. One, that even though there's signs everywhere that says, do not take selfies with the seals and the sea lions, there's a host of people down there way too close to seals and sea lions, which are not trained animals uh, taking selfies. And what was great is that every now and then, a sea lion would let them know they were right behind them. And they would make that sudden movement toward them. And nothing's more fun than seeing people panic in the middle of a selfie. I hope they caught that. Ah! Right? You know, I'm going to be, anyway, anyway. I digress. While I was there, I was just watching. I was watching how this mound of flesh works. And there's a lot of barking. It, I feel like it was a beautiful picture of our world. Just, just using your weight and blubber to shove somebody off the rock. You know, if, if, if they're in the way, you just, you know, put your big old mouth over their neck and gnaw on them a little bit and, and they move and you just bark louder and, you know, I mean, all the rest. And, and I sort of thought, this is, this is like a picture of current society, you know. And uh, it just feels that way. It entertained me for quite a while, actually. I, I, I may have extended, extended my parking limit sitting there staring at both the humanity and the reflection of humanity there on the rocks. And I don't think any of us particularly enjoy that. I think what we all internally think is, wouldn't it be great if everybody else was self-controlled? Have you ever noticed that? You know, it's so easy to see the lack of the fruit of the Spirit in other people, and we are so slow to see it in ourselves. But here's the thing we've been encouraging our, our, our friends and, and community members and our church to do with every single one of the fruit of the Spirit is look hard in the mirror and say, how do I see the Spirit growing this characteristic in my life? And then ask the second question, how would I like to see the Spirit grow this characteristic in my life? And we go through the process of saying, Lord, I am sorry that in no way have I leaned upon your grace and your strength through the Spirit to see this grow in my life. Forgive me and help me through your power to reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, Self-control, help me, help me to more and more reflect this beautiful, God-glorifying, Jesus-honoring characteristic in my life. And it starts by becoming aware, aware that self-control is not just a problem 
of the seals on the rocks of this world, but it is a problem in me. It for sure is a problem in me. And then ask that God will help you. Paul says, I want to see the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is a wonderful thing. It grows. It grows. As the Spirit continues to do his work in us, how do we see that? How would we know if the fruit of self-control was growing in our church? Well, we would know it because before we say that thing that feels right in our mouth and our mind, we might pause and ask God to guide our words. Before we respond to that roommate or classmate or workmate, we might take a moment to say, Lord, how do I speak in a way that's for their best interest and in a way that glorifies you? Before I post the response uh, or forward that Facebook, you know, what do they call them? Post, I guess. I, I don't do Facebook. Sorry about that. You know, before I do it, ask, how will this help someone else and how will it bring you glory? Imagine. We can't necessarily change the whole world at one time, but we might be able to change the world you actually live in a little by the grace of God through the power of the Spirit. And I can only ask that God starts with me. No matter what my friend does, my spouse does, my roommate does, my children do, my parents do, no matter what they do, I pray that the Lord will be manifest in me through the growth of the fruit of the spirit of self-control in my life. Why? Not for my own good, but for the good of others and the glory of God. You see, this is what Paul wants in the church. Next week, we're going to get back into our broader study of the book of Galatians, and I'll give you a preview. He's saying there are two ways that we can walk. We can walk according to the flesh, or we can keep in step with the Spirit. And we're going to apply all of these fruit of the Spirit that we have been learning about to how we live and walk every single day. But this is the way we can start this week. You know, there is an old ministry uh, that's been around uh, for a while, especially in our heritage, called Sonship. And in Sonship, one of the uh, best things that they do uh, to help people see their need for the grace of God is they actually have something called the tongue experiment. The tongue experiment. And you say, that that sounds painful. It is painful, but not in the way you think. The tongue experiment is for people who don't think they need God's help and the grace of the Holy Spirit working in their life. And that is by actually writing down every single thing you say for a week. Write it down. Now, some of you are very much introverts and you're like, I could do that on the back of an envelope. Some of us will need more storage on our computer to write down everything that we say. But to write down everything you say and ask the question, was it true? Was it loving? And was it good for the edification of others? And very quickly you realize, Lord Jesus, I have no self-control. Forgive me and help me through your spirit to grow. Maybe that's an experiment you could just try for the rest of the day, especially when making comments about how much you enjoyed the sermon you got to start somewhere. 
And let's see our need for God and his grace. And then let's take the next step. Let's lean hard on his supreme and everlasting power to see this fruit develop in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how kind you are to us. You're so patient with us, Lord. You listen to every word we say. You actually hear every thought. You see every action, and yet you still love us because of Jesus. And we are so thankful. Lord, we want to more beautifully reflect the reality and power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We pray that you will help us begin, at least today, considering how we're seeing that spirit-enabled prioritization of the needs of others and your glory that we call self-control. Give us grace to see our need and to trust you for our need, that we might grow to become more like you, Lord Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.